Well, I expect you feel the seriousness of this passage of Scripture that Megan just read for us. Today we're considering the story of a very famous supper, a very famous holiday meal. In fact, I think we could make the case that this is the most famous dinner in the history of the world. If I were speaking only to my friend Ken, who works for McDonald's, I might add that this meal is even more famous than the Happy Meal. But more seriously, this supper that Megan just read about is not only recalled and remembered, but it is in some ways commemorated and in certain ways reenacted every Sunday, 52 weeks a year, all over the world. Not only in Jerusalem and Israel, but also in places like Italy and Ethiopia and India and Indonesia and in beautiful Midwestern towns like Aurora, Illinois. Why do people all around the world, 2,000 years later, Celebrate this meal. Around the world and across the centuries, why has this supper taken such a prominent place in Christian worship? Today, I want to lead us in considering what this supper means and what it means for us today. But first, before we get to what it means and what it means to us today, I I want to slow down and notice a few things about the original context of this supper, as Matthew describes it here in his gospel. In order to understand this supper in its original context, we first need to understand that this is a Passover meal. In verses 17 through 19 that Megan read a moment ago, we see this issue emphasized. This is the first day of the seven-day or eight-day feast of unleavened bread. And the disciples come to Jesus with a question, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the... Passover. He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them and they prepared the what word Passover three times in a few short sentences. You might think the author is trying to underline something And get our attention with it, right? Not only here at the beginning of Matthew chapter 26 in verses 1 and 2. Jesus had explained to his disciples his understanding. More than his understanding, his intention. 
that he was going to Jerusalem and he was going to celebrate the Passover. And during that Passover celebration, the Son of Man would be killed, specifically crucified. Why is this Passover thing so significant? In part, we need to understand that the Passover was the premier redemptive event in the Hebrew Bible. If you read through the first five books of the Bible, which set the tone for the rest of the Old Testament and the rest of the scriptures, the premier redemptive event that ignites the whole story of redemption, we might say, the one that gets more focus than anything else, is this series of events in which God redeemed his people out from slavery in Egypt. These events come to a crescendo in Exodus chapter 12, where God explicitly describes what's going to happen on the day of redemption. And he specifically makes plans for what needs to happen the day before redemption. The day before redemption is accomplished, you need to go and select a spotless lamb, the best you can find. And if you can't afford one, share one with your neighbor. Find a spotless lamb, the best you can find. And on the day before redemption is accomplished, that lamb needs to be slaughtered. And some of its blood needs to be taken and painted over the doorposts of every house of those who will be redeemed. You see, so many generations ago, in the days of Moses, on the night before God led his people out of slavery and into freedom, first there had to be the death of a spotless lamb. And this supper, located in this Jewish holiday week, is purposefully located in the calendar, not by accident, but by God's purposeful intention, as a way of explaining many generations ago, God's people ate this supper on the night before God redeemed And on this night, again, God's people eat this supper on the night before their redemption is accomplished through the sacrifice of a spotless lamb under whose blood many will find freedom. Why is the Passover context important? Because it shows that the death of Jesus is not just an accident. In fact, we could take a step further than that. It shows that the death of Jesus is not just one event among many in the Bible. You know, sometimes when we teach our kids stories from Scripture, which I love teaching kids stories about Scripture, and parents, I hope you teach kids stories about Scripture. You're getting me there, right? 
But sometimes when we teach our kids stories about Scripture, we unintentionally give them the perspective that this book is just full of a whole bunch of random stories. And Jesus and his death, it's just one of them. But this meal, on this weekend of all weekends, set against the backdrop of the commemoration of God's redeeming work in the premier redeeming event of all the Hebrew Scriptures, it's meant to tell us this supper is not just one event among many. This event reveals the heart of God's redemptive plan. The context of this supper is significant. It's a Passover meal. But there's another thing we need to notice about the context here, and it has to do with who is sharing this Passover feast together. We don't know this exactly from Matthew 26, but if we compare with other accounts of what was going on in this week leading up to the death of Jesus, we know that on this Thursday, Jesus was talking a lot about love. As he explained his own coming death, he explained to his disciples, greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. Throughout this Thursday, Jesus has been talking about his greater love for his disciples, but he's also been urging his disciples to love one another. For example, in John 13, we read that Jesus tells his disciples, on on this day I give to you, A new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. At this feast, on this day, as the Passover approaches, Jesus is talking frequently about love. But now, as the table is set for the holiday feast, loves are tested, as they sometimes are at our holiday meals as well. Loves are tested. Jesus foretells that one of the twelve is going to betray him. At the end of our passage that Megan read, we get a snapshot of Peter's interaction with Jesus. Jesus actually says to all of the disciples, all of your loves are going to, for all of you, your love is going to be tested. And Jesus tells his disciples the hard news, all of you are going to fall away. And of course, Peter, like some of us, says, no, Lord, not me. And Jesus says to fickle disciples like Peter and James and John and you and me, 
actually, when the shepherd has been struck, many will scatter. Nobody sitting at that table is without fault, without fickleness, without some potential to drift away, without some potential to turn their back on Jesus. None at that table is without fault except for Jesus, the Lamb of God himself. And yet there is one at the table whose faults go particularly deep. We'll come back in two weeks to the story of Peter. How he will deny the Lord three times, not once, but again and again. He will deny the Lord three times and yet he will be restored by the Lord's grace. But what about Judas? What about his betrayal? One by one, after Jesus foretells the denial that is to come, the betrayal that is to come, one by one, the disciples pause and ask this question. I know you've been talking about your love for us. I know you've been talking about our love for one another, but now you're talking about a betrayal Lord, is it I? And finally, it comes to Judas. He says, Is it I, Lord? And Jesus answers, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Serious words indicating the seriousness of ultimately and finally turning our backs without repentance away from the Lord Jesus Christ. I notice a few things from this that might be relevant to understand in the context of understanding this supper. First of all, I notice... It's wise for disciples to pause from time to time and ask the question, is it I, Lord? A version of that ancient prayer, Lord, search me and know me. It's good for us in particular To search our own souls and to check our hearts and to check our lives as it relates to this issue of love for one another. And our unity with the other disciples of Jesus. If someone is going to betray the brothers and sisters in the family of God, is it I, Lord? 
it's good for us to pause and ask this question. And another thing I notice is that as Jesus serves this supper, Judas is at the table. Jesus is serving Judas all the way to the end. And this reminds me that in our own experience as the body of Christ, the family of Jesus, centuries later, we, might, we may find ourselves coming to the table alongside one or two who may end up turning away. Who may end up turning their back on Jesus. First John chapter 2 names this situation. They were among us, but they went out from us because they were not of us. There were those not only at this first table, but in the tables that multiplied throughout the world. There were some who came to the table and eventually turned away. And if that is the case today, when we find our hearts grieved over others who appear to be turning away, first of all, we might be wise to remember we don't yet know if they're walking away as more like Peter's or more like Judas's. And even if it does turn out to be more like a Judas kind of betrayal, he used to be one of us and he has turned his back on the whole faith. He rejects it now. He mocks it. If that turns out to be the case and we find our hearts with grief looking back to days when we used to come to the table alongside that brother. Jesus doesn't look down at us scowling with folded arms saying, you blew it. Jesus looks at his body and says, I understand. I understand what it's like to serve to the very end one who would ultimately end up turning away. I understand what it is to be betrayed by those I've loved. The context of this supper is set in the midst of a Passover holiday and Judas is among those seated at the table. But now we're positioned to press in a little more deeply to the meaning of this supper. What does it mean and what does it tell us about why Jesus came into this world? And what does it tell us about his death? Matthew's Gospel in chapter 26, beginning in verse 26, offers us three explanations or a three-part explanation of the meaning of this supper. 
First of all, he draws our attention to the bread. As they were eating this Passover feast, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Consider this supper in its Passover context for just a moment. In every home in the whole country, in every home throughout Jerusalem, the day had been busy with preparations. As best as I can tell, we would call it April 2nd, 33, as we commonly count dates today. In their time, place, and culture, in a Jewish calendar, they would have called it the 14th day of the month of Nisan. The day of the Passover preparation. Mark chapter 14, verse 12, in case we're not aware of what that means, tells us explicitly that's the day that the Passover lamb is sacrificed. Throughout the day, people have been busy preparing their homes. There needs to be bitter herbs set out on the table to remind people of the bitterness of slavery in Egypt from which the Lord had redeemed His people. There needs to be four cups full of wine set out on the table to remind God's people of the good promises the Lord had made His people for the journey ahead. There needs to be fruit set out on the table according to custom. But above all, there needs to be a lamb. This is the thing that is accented in Exodus chapter 6 more than anything else. Finding the lamb. Sacrificing the lamb. Finding your feast under the blood of the lamb. This is what is accented over and over and over. Why? Because back in that first Passover feast, there were only two options in the land of Goshen. In your household, either a lamb died or a son died. And so for every household in Goshen, as they ate this meal of the lamb, with the blood of the lamb painted over the doorpost, everybody eating that meal understood that lamb died for us. It's the centerpiece of the whole feast. So interestingly, here in the Gospel accounts, We have wine. We have unleavened bread prepared for the journey. But where is the lamb? I suppose the text is silent because we're meant to reflect and recognize at some point that Jesus 
is the lamb to replace all other lambs. His sacrifice was the sacrifice to end the need for all other sacrifices made for sin. I suppose the Lamb is never mentioned in these accounts because we are meant to recognize it's not blood painted with, painted with a spoon over a doorpost. It's the blood of the eternal covenant shed by the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world. I suppose we're meant to recognize that Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed, as the New Testament later explains it. But here, Jesus takes simply the unleavened bread. And what does He do? He blesses it with thanksgiving. He breaks it. And He gives it. And this bread, blessed, broken, given for you, this bread, He tells us, is a sign of His own body. Blessed, broken, and given for you. What would the effect have been for those who first read Matthew's Gospel? What is the effect that is intended for us today? I think the bread invites us to look back with gratefulness. The bread invites us to look back When I say gratefulness, I don't just mean say your pleases and thank yous. I mean with a sense of wonder in our hearts. We're meant to look back through the bread that is blessed and broken and given. We're meant to look back at the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Jesus Christ who gave Himself once for all time to bring us near to God. We're meant to look back with gratefulness. I want to keep moving for now. I'll say more about that in a minute. But the meaning of this supper is not only explained with the bread that is blessed, broken, and given. It's also explained with the cup. Notice what Jesus says about the cup in verse 27. He took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. And now an additional word of explanation is offered. For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins.
This cup is meant to remind us of the blood of a covenant. What is a covenant? It's an agreement between two parties secured by blood. In the ancient world, going back, for example, to Genesis chapter 15, people would talk about cutting a covenant. They didn't simply write the terms of the agreement in ink on paper and put their names at the bottom of it. Going back to ancient customs that are reflected in Scripture, a covenant wasn't just signed, it was cut. And it was cut specifically with the blood of a sacrificial animal, which was often sliced in half with its two parts laid on either side as the two members of this covenant agreement stood between these two sliced open portions of a sacrificial animal, saying in effect, if I fail to keep up my side of the covenant, may such be done to me. And the Lord cut such a covenant with His people. And of course we know from chapter after chapter and book after book, God's people didn't perfectly keep their side of the covenant. So sacrifice after sacrifice had to be made by the priests. But now Jesus shows up representing the heart of God. And Jesus says, if blood needs to be shed to maintain this relationship between me and my people, may it be my blood instead of yours. This is the blood that secures the covenant. Other places in the New Testament reflect the tradition by describing it as the new covenant secured in the blood of Jesus Christ. What is this covenant or this new covenant that Jesus is referring to? It's not some new idea or new invention that Jesus came up with. As if Jesus is saying, you know, the Father tried really hard for all those years with the old covenant. And I think it's time for an upgrade. Let's try a new idea. Where does this idea of a new covenant come from? It comes from the prophets of the old covenant itself. And so if we go to Jeremiah 31, 31, for example, we hear the prophet Jeremiah declaring the hope of a new covenant. One of the prophets of the Hebrew people, one of the prophets of the old covenant comes and he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. And what will that new covenant involve? For the sake of time, I'm skipping a few verses, but clue into these verses at least. Here's what this new covenant means. God promises, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Do you hear how relational this thing is? 
Sometimes we mistake the idea of God's relationship with us as if it's just some contract status. I've got you under contract now. Do you hear how relational this is? I'll be their God. They'll be my people. Do you hear the love, the affection, the relationship that is knit into this? I'll be their God. They'll be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Which means that if you show up here on Sunday and you say, you know, I think I've got faith in Jesus, but I don't know nearly as much as anybody else in this room. If you're here by the blood of Jesus Christ, then you know the Lord God Almighty personally. It's secured for you. Which isn't to say there's no need for teaching. I mean, consider that the whole New Testament consists of teaching to be passed on to us, right? But it means that you know the Lord just as I do and just as the brothers and sisters down the pew from you do today. If you showed up feeling like, yeah, I think I'm here by faith in Jesus, but I don't really know God, then I've got some good news for you. The blood of the covenant ensures that He is your God and you are His beloved and you know Him. Your relationship isn't just through other people. You're his beloved. And he is yours. From the least to the greatest. Why? Jeremiah 31, 34. Because I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. In fact, this is the element of the new covenant that Jesus himself underlines and underscores and reminds us of here in verse 28, isn't it? For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I know that sometimes we show up on Sunday and we feel like everybody else has this kind of beeline to God. We could feel like everybody else has this deep and rich connection with God that somehow I don't have. Sometimes we figure maybe it's because I've messed up in the past. Maybe it's just because of something about what I've done. Maybe it's because of something about who I am, but... It just seems like I don't have this connection with God that everybody else has. And sometimes under the weight of that guilt or under the weight of shame, we may even start to drift further and further away from the Lord. We just kind of back away slowly, one inch at a time, being pulled away by the weight of guilt, being pulled away by the weight of of shame. But listen, this supper reminds us that Jesus shed his blood to fully establish 
by a covenant secured by His own blood, which is already shed once for all time. Everything that is needed for you to be fully forgiven by God. And sometimes we say, I don't feel like I can believe it because I have a hard time forgiving myself. God has found a way to forgive you. Even for those things over which you feel like it's so hard to forgive yourself. He's found a way to forgive you. And it's not a loophole that you need to figure out how to work yourself through. He's found a way to forgive you. And he has secured fully today, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. For the rest of your life and for eternity to come. He has secured once for all time everything that is needed for you to be fully forgiven. And fully embraced in the family of God. Fully embraced as one of the beloveds who participate in the blood of His covenant. Amen? And therefore, we sing songs like this. The blood that cleanses every stain of sin shed for you. Therefore, drink and remember. He drained death's cup that all may enter in to receive the life of God. And so we share this bread of life and we drink of His sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of grace here around the table of our King. The meaning of this supper is revealed in the bread. The meaning of this supper is revealed in the cup of the new covenant. The meaning of this supper is also revealed in a third way. It's also revealed in the promise. Don't skip over where Jesus wants to land this thing. Verse 29. We might picture him having just held up the cup and begun to pass it around the table. You drink of it too because it's for you. You eat this bread because it's broken for you. You drink this cup because the blood is for you. And maybe as the cup is still passing around the table, Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine again until. I love that word until. I love that word until. I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new. I don't underline in my Bible personally, but if you underline in your Bible, underline that word new. I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Do you hear the promise that Jesus built into this supper? Usually, we refer to this historical account of this meal that Jesus celebrated on Thursday evening, 14 Nisan, April 2nd, AD 33. We typically refer to this meal as the Last Supper. 
That's the painting title, right? So that's the right title, isn't it? But do you realize what Jesus says? This is not the Last Supper. This is just the beginning of something new and better yet to come. This isn't the end. And when Jesus talks about life to come, about life beyond the grave, about life beyond death, sometimes we get these ideas from our cultural context that make it seem like, all right, you live your best life now if you're lucky. And then you die and you become a spirit and you get to play a harp on clouds. Kind of a consolation prize for having lost your life on earth. Jesus' perspective is totally different than just being a spirit playing a harp on a cloud. There is new and better wine to be drank. There's a new and better feast to celebrate together. There is something to look forward to, not only for Jesus, but for us and for all who together with him will end up in the kingdom of his father. There's a whole new, there's a new realm, a new era, a new heavens, a new earth, a whole new day and a whole new celebration yet to come according to Jesus. Um, last week, by which I don't mean the last seven days, like seven days before the last seven days, last week, um, there were three funerals, three women that I respect and about whom I cared. I officiated one of them for our dear sister, Sharon Bertolio. And in one sense, Sundays won't be the same without her smile. As she gripped her, the sides of her walker with anticipation and made her way down to the front on Sunday mornings. Another funeral for a dear woman named Mrs. Carlson who meant a great deal for me in my own journey of faith. Another that I wasn't able to attend and I do regret it, although I know you can't be two places at once, was for Nat's mom, a dear sweet saint. You have three funerals like that in one week It puts in front of you the seriousness of questions about life and death. How am I living my life? What's the point of it all? What comes after death? What about facing God? Maybe for some of us, the answers about death or the questions about death feel like no big deal. It's so far away. Until it isn't so far away. Until it's right there in front of you. And then, 
we start to appreciate the way that Jesus takes so seriously the things that will matter for eternity. Not just tips for how to live a better life now, but a new covenant, an eternal covenant, by which we can celebrate and fellowship and feast with God himself forever. You see, Christians believe that Jesus, through his death, has defeated death for us. So that even if we die, yet we can live and not just live like spirits floating in clouds. No, the picture Jesus gives is that there is a day coming when our bodies will be raised. When we will share in His resurrection in full. Drinking of the fruit of the vine. Feasting forever at the table in the kingdom of God. This is a part of our ancient creeds. This is a part of what Christians have recited together And celebrated together on Sundays for 2,000 years. Consider the last words of the Nicene Creed. Quote, we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Christianity is not just about finding some tips for improving happiness. I'm all for tips that will improve your happiness. Don't get me wrong. But there is so much more to life than this life. And by the blood of the eternal covenant, secured by the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are invited to share with Him forevermore in this glorious promise, which invites us to look forward with hope. What is this supper all about? It's about an invitation to draw near to God through faith in Jesus Christ who gave Himself for us. And so we look back with profound gratefulness in our hearts saying, thank you Jesus for what you've accomplished. Invites us to draw near to God. Remembering, not only looking back, At His body which was given for us. But looking up. Looking upwards. In full assurance of faith. Resting secure. In the promises that are made and secured in His blood. And it invites us to look forward. To look forward not with dread. Not with fear. Not with disappointment. Not with a sense of like, oh, that will be such a letdown. But to look forward with hope. To look forward with hope that can keep us running the race all the way to that day when we see His face and join Him at the table of our King. And so with, as we sing, and so with thankfulness and faith we rise. 
to respond and to remember our call to follow in the steps of Christ as his body here on earth, as we share in his suffering. As Christians, we don't prepare, we don't pretend that the journey forward is without suffering. We understand full well his journey to glory went right through the heart of suffering. But as we share in his suffering, we proclaim that Christ will come again. And oh, we'll join in the feast of heaven around the table of our King.